Fantastic. Well, we're going to uh, spend a bit of time together um, exploring one of the great stories of the Bible. Um, the Bible is pretty much packed full of great stories, but here's one of them. And um, quiet in the cheap seats. And uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 45 together. And you'll find that on page 50 in the Bibles in the pews. Genesis chapter 45 onwards, uh, well, and before. And it's the story of Joseph. And uh, we're going to tackle that thing you should never try and do, which is tackle the entirety of somebody's life all in 20 minutes. But through one particular lens, uh, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. So... We've been um, thinking over these last few weeks about wisdom. We've been thinking about what's a wise shape to life. Or to put it a different way, the way that we've used maybe most often, what is a a good foundation on which to build life? Uh, We've gone back here quite a few times to the story that Jesus tells of the wise builder and the foolish builder and saying actually in the the shape of the story, the the crucial difference between them is not so much the design with which they build or the bricks and the mortar that they use to build, but the place on which they choose to build. And the the challenge that Jesus poses for us is not so much does your life match up in bricks and mortar terms with everybody else's, but have you built on solid foundations? Is your life built on values, aspirations, assumptions about life that are, in Bible terms, wise ones? Uh, And uh, again, we've repeatedly come back to this core idea that wisdom, in Bible terms, is is about knowing who God is, knowing how God works, and what the Bible would call the fear of the Lord. Not talking about being afraid of God, but in terms of putting God in his right place, recognising God is who he is, recognising God as the king of kings, the giver of all good gifts. And that by seeing God as he truly is, that is the wise way to live. And so we've tried to apply that a whole range of areas of life, um, trying to avoid the temptation to simply give 10 top tips for that part of life, but saying, what's a wise way to deal with family life, or friendships, or money? Or last week, um, Joseph was talking, I think, very powerfully about failure. Well, we're going to sort of flip that on its head this week, and we're going to ask the question, what does um, a wise attitude to success look like? And now, that is relevant to you, whether or not you think of yourself as a success. It's relevant, clearly, if you do feel that you've been successful or are successful at this particular point, because the question is, well, what is a wise attitude to that? It's relevant to you if you feel that you're not a success, but everybody else you know is. Because actually, we've still got to ask the question, well, how do we think of their success? It's wise as well if we're thinking about our aspiration to be successful. Um, So to make clear, I'm not going to give you 10 top tips for how to be successful. You can pay your money and go to your seminar on that one. That's fine. Or you buy your self-help book or you just simply work hard. But this is about how we see the gift of success. And we're going to do it by taking a very, very quick canter through the life of Joseph. It's genuinely one of the great stories of the whole of Scripture. Um, It's a sustained bit of storytelling that runs all the way from Genesis chapter 37 all the way through to Genesis chapter 50. And it's a big, long life lived at one of the great moments of human history at the time of the, the, um, the, the, the Egyptian empire being one of the greatest empires that there has ever been, the Pharaoh being one of the most powerful, single most powerful people that has ever lived, and Joseph ends up thrown into the midst of this uh, uh, huge sort of machine. And he goes from 
being, at the beginning of our story in Genesis chapter 37, he goes from being simply a nothing. I mean, in, in ancient Near Eastern terms, he was as, uh, well, actually, I was going to say he was as low as you could get. No, because in that culture, he was a man. So that already, in that culture, put him, you know, a few rungs up the ladder. But he was the youngest man in his family, which put him at the bottom of that particular heap. And he was very much the youngest, which in normal terms would have made, meant him really, he got the sort of uh, the, the short end of everything. But he was also simply a wandering nomad. He wasn't part of a big tribe, a big country, uh, part of a big city. They were simply um, sheep, goat herders, uh, wandering through the desert regions of that part of the world and nothing. And he goes from chapter 37 to by the time we get to chapter 45, he goes from being a nobody nothing to being the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. It's an astonishing story arc. He goes from being this wandering nomad at the bottom of the heap in his family to being second only to Pharaoh in the whole of Egypt. And he goes from pretty much success looking like not losing his sheep to being the one who saves his entire nation, an entire nation from disaster, that saves his family from famine, and that because of which his family then becomes a great nation itself. Because actually his family was destined to become God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, into which Jesus himself was born. And the question is, what does the Bible teach us about wise, a wise attitude to success from his life? Well, I think part of what it teaches us is simply by watching the way he changes. So back in chapter 37, we are going to have our reading in a moment, don't worry. Back in chapter 37, we find Joseph, the spoilt brat. You probably know that bit of the story very well. That's the Technicolor Dreamcoat moment. That's when he is the one to whom his father gives um, the, the very best clothes. It's what spawns the, the musical and the, the um, endless children's activities of making beautiful coats and colouring them in and all of that. And, and, and there is something about that moment in his life that is very familiar. We know what it looks like. Um, I, maybe we'd never admit to being one ourselves, but we know what it looks like for somebody to be spoiled, for somebody to have that sense of unself-conscious privilege and entitlement. Something had bred in him. Well, we know what it was. The favouritism of his father had bred in him this sense of, well, of course I'm going to be successful. Of course I'm going to be in charge. And so because of that, actually when he has these remarkable dreams about the, the sheaves of corn bowing down to the, the, the great sheaf of corn, he just passes it on without so much as a hiccup. It just never occurs to him that anybody would be upset to find that he might be in charge over his older brothers. Because he has that sense of entitlement, that sense of, well, success is, of course, that's who I'm going to be. And yet, by the point in the story that we're about to read, Genesis 45, something has changed. There is a gracefulness towards his brothers who actually, we find, hated him so much that they wanted to murder him. And when they didn't quite have the guts to do that, thankfully, they only sold him into slavery, thinking they'd never see him again. They hated him so much, and yet he has a gracefulness towards his family and a sense of gratitude for his success and a sense of responsibility for his success and what he does with it that has transformed. And the question is how and why. And as you follow the story through, I think we see a wisdom being bred in him that we could all learn from. So let's read um, these first 11 verses of chapter 45. They come towards the end of the, the story that we know, um, and you'll find it on page 50 if I read it for you. So this is um, 
after the brothers have come asking for food and he's played a bit of a trick on them backwards and forwards and he's about to reveal to them that he's not only alive but he is actually the second most powerful person in the whole of Egypt. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all the attendants and he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. So come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. And I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The fundamental thing of the many things that we could say about the Bible's wisdom about success, I'm afraid is going to be a bit familiar to you because I say it every sermon, and certainly every sermon that we've had on wisdom. It's simply this, that when the Bible looks at success, it says that wisdom is to recognise it as a gift. It's simply a gift. As we talked about when we were talking about money or the gift of work or even the gift of family or a friendship, we recognise that we are on the receiving end of something that is what the Bible calls grace. Grace is simply shorthand for saying that which you receive which you didn't earn and that which you receive which you cannot lose. A gift. Simply gift. When Joseph looks back on his life in that reading we've just had, it is really clear that when he looks at all the threads of his life, all the ups and the downs, everything that's brought him to that moment of being ruler, even over Pharaoh's household, over the whole of Egypt. This is an enormous empire, the like of which the world has rarely seen. He doesn't go, look what I did. He says, look what God did. And he does it, I suspect, because actually when he looks at his life, he recognises this has just landed in his lap. I mean, think of what's happened in his life so far. For a start, he was born to the particular family that he was born to. He had the favour of his father, was brought up in a particular way. And even when his brothers hated him, actually they didn't kill him, they sold him. And when he was sold, the people that he was sold to sold him to the right person, if you like. Um, If you turn back a few pages you'll find that he was sold, um, page uh, uh, Genesis 39, you'll find that he was sold in the end to Potiphar. And Potiphar, um, but they're on page 43, Potiphar was a very senior member 
of Pharaoh's household. And it was through Potiphar that he ends up, through some pretty rough circumstances, we'll come back to those in a moment, coming to the attention of Pharaoh, being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people to be able to use the gift that God has given him to be able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and to end up being able to be the person God uses to rescue this entire nation and his family from famine, from, from death in the end. And even in the midst of it, when you start reading the story, can I just say to you, if you only do one thing as a result of today, simply go back and just read the story. Chapter 37 to chapter 50. It'll take you probably half an hour. An hour if you're a very slow reader and want to chew over every word. It is just a fantastic story. And the more you read it, the more you realise that the writer of Genesis really wants you only to hear one thing and hear it again and again and again. Look what God did. Just look what God did. Not so much, look what Joseph did. What an amazing guy. Although he clearly was. Look what God did. Even in prison, which we'll find him in a moment, in Potiphar's household, the people he ends up happening to be in prison with happen to be the right people to then give him the ear of the Pharaoh. And he plans none of it. When he's in the middle of it, he has no idea any of this is going on. It is pure gift. And when he looks back on his life, he's able time and again simply to say, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The reading that I read for you, verse 5 of chapter 45. And now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then the the, the pinnacle of it all, verse 9. This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me. Who made you? Are you a self-made man or woman? Or is it the Lord? That's the heart of wise attitude to success, the sense of the gift of it, that this is all grace. That's not to say that Joseph didn't work hard. He did. That's not to say that Joseph didn't apply the very best of what God had given him. He did. That's not to say that Joseph wasn't a remarkable man. He was. But even that was pure gift, a gift to be received, to be enjoyed, to be recognised, to be grateful for. My question for you this morning, as this first part, is simply to say, what's God put in your lap? What gifts has God given you? Might be simply the gifts of time and energy. Might be the gifts of good friends and friendship. It might be some remarkable gifts in business, money-making. Might be some gifts in whole other areas of life that you're successful in. But where you're successful, the wisdom from the Bible says the place to start, the sure place to stand, is to be grateful. Because the Lord did this. But the second thing is that the Bible's wisdom about success is that success includes plenty of failure. Success includes plenty of failure. And in fact, far from being simply the opposite of failure, success includes it. Now you find that as you walk your way through this story of Joseph, we'll only be able to skim the surface. But actually, if you took a snapshot at any particular moment in Joseph's life, what you'd find is time and again, he's failed. He looks down and out. He looks absolutely at the end. So take this um, whole story of Potiphar, page 43, chapter 39. Um, He arrives 
uh, with these slave traders. He is sold, lucky man, as it were, into Potiphar's household, not anybody, just sort of random. And um, to start with, it all goes really well. Potiphar recognizes, interestingly enough, verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him, there's that sense of even Potiphar can see that somebody is with him and giving him the success, but actually it all goes wrong. Because the story is that Potiphar's wife likes the look of Joseph too, that um, she wants him to sleep with her, he says no, and he ends up being accused of a terrible crime of violence towards her and thrown in prison. He's innocent, entirely innocent. In fact, he has been beyond reproach in every way, and he is absolutely at the end. I mean, this wasn't a, a time um, in, uh, in history where there was due process or trials. This was simply, if you get on the wrong side of the wrong person, you're in prison, and you, you rot. That's where you stay. If you'd taken a snapshot of his life at that moment, rotting in a, an Egyptian jail, you'd have just gone, well, you failed, haven't you? It's done. It's over. And then he fails again, because although um, he has this um, wonderful sort of happenstance in chapter 40 of meeting the cupbearer to the king and the, and the king's baker, basically two of the pharaoh's highest, most trusted officials who've fallen out of favour with him and also ended up in prison, you think, great, good, good sort of coincidence there. But that all goes wrong too. Because although he's able to interpret their dreams and they really promise, they promise him, Joseph, you've helped us, we're going to remember you when we get out. They do get out and they forget him failed again. This was, this was his get-out-of-jail-free card. In fact, he had two get-out-of-jail-free cards, and both of them failed. They both forgot about him. Again, if you'd taken a snapshot, you'd have said, failure. You're at the end. And, of course, what I've missed out, you go right back to the beginning, and he's down in this well he gets thrown into by his brothers while they're trying to decide what to do to him. Failure. Failure, 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 failure. And yet... It is only because of those failures that he ends up the success that he is. It was only because of the failure of being hated by his brothers. It was only because of the failure of ending up in prison wrongfully. It was only because of the failure of the timing of when the cupbearer suddenly remembered him. It was only because of those that he ended up where he was. Paul, in the New Testament, many thousands of years later, wrote in his letter to the Romans... God works all things for the good of those who love him. That's not the same as saying, as some, I guess, have said over the years, that somehow God zaps us with failure in order to achieve stuff. No. What it is, is to say that God uses even our failures to teach, to shape, and to bless us. And actually, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that failure is the thing through which we learn. Somebody wise once said, you never learn anything from your success. It teaches you what you already know. What you learn from is only ever your failures. And that was certainly true from Joseph. He learned from, was shaped by, and was guided through these times of failure. Somebody once used the image of a tapestry. Beautiful on the front, and yet on the back there are loops and hooks and little stray bits of thread and that sense that in Joseph, he, Joseph's life, he was able to look at the back to see the mess of his life, to turn it round, and with that perspective of time, to see how God had woven the mess he had made and had, that had been done to him into something that was remarkable and beautiful. We don't always have that privilege of seeing the whole of life like that. 
But the Bible says, nevertheless, it's true. Are we able and willing to take even our failures and say to God, you can do something with this. You can teach me through this. You can bless me even through this. I don't want it. I don't like it. It breaks my heart. It breaks God's heart. But thank you that you can use even this to bless me. So wisdom sees success as a gift, pure gift from God to be thankful for. Wisdom sees that success includes plenty of failure through which God can even bring good. But finally, and perhaps most challenging of all, wisdom says that success is not just about me. Now, if I put myself in Joseph's shoes, I would have been very tempted to have spent, I should have worked out how many years it was between when he was sold into slavery and chapter 45, but it was some years. I'd have spent those years plotting my revenge. Actually, I hope I wouldn't, but there's a lot of me that feels like I would have done. My brothers have sold me into slavery, they've just got rid of me, and as I work my way up through Egyptian society, and as I end up in this position of power, and I'm thinking, I'm going to show them. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to show them that I was what I said I was. Those dreams weren't idiotic. I wasn't, you know, this spoiled brat. I'm somebody now. I'm going, to re- I'm going to put it to them. Now, even if we wouldn't have been quite so crass as that, we all have moments like that in life. We want to prove it. We want to show that we've been a success. We want to prove the doubters wrong. The remarkable thing about chapter 45 that we read is that there is not a trace in Joseph of going, look what I did. In fact, the whole of what he says to them is not, look what I did, it's, look what God did. It's all, look what God did. And more than that, it's, look what God did so that. This thing that success for Joseph has been something with a purpose. And the purpose wasn't simply to big him up, not simply so that he could prove to his brothers that he really was who he thought he was. Actually, he realises that the purpose of his success was to be a blessing to other people. Joseph's success meant, as he says, that the land is going to be preserved, the people are going to be preserved. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will, be not, there will not be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. a remarkable moment in Joseph's life. The so what of success he's recognised isn't about him. It's about what God wants to do through him. If today you're feeling successful in any part of life, I'd love to ask you the question, for what? So what? Who are you blessing through your success? It might be in hidden, quiet, behind-the-scenes ways. It may simply be that in your workplace you have influence that you can make people's lives good lives rather than a misery. It may be that you can change the culture of the company where you're working. It may be that you simply befriend one person in the place where you are. It may be that your success is simply that you're living in the house where you're living, in the community where you are, and you ask the question, well, why am I here, Lord? Who am I going to be a blessing to? Are my neighbours going to be glad they live next to me? Am I kids' friends going to be glad they're friends with my kids? Are the people I meet day by day going to be glad they've met me? Who am I being a blessing to with the success that God has 
given me. And if you're somebody that is striving for success or envious of the success of others, then we still want to ask that question. Well, what is success for? It's not, look what I did. It's, look what the Lord has done. I could leave it there. But actually, the more I thought about it this week, and I've thought about the shape of Joseph's life, it's kept pushing me forward. 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, however many years, to another young man. Another young man from an unimportant, little regarded part of the world. Another young man who was viewed by at least some as a real upstart, even a threat. Another young man who, despite the incredible good he did for people, was still hated and at times vilified by those in power. And someone who was betrayed, not in this case by brothers, but by a friend. One who, like Joseph, was convicted of crimes when he was entirely innocent. And one whose abject failure was played out in a public, crushing humiliation, the like of which Joseph never had to endure. When you take a snapshot in the Gospels of the life of Jesus, it looks like failure. This ragtag group of disciples up against the might of the Roman Empire and the might of the Jewish authorities. This man betrayed by his closest friend. This man stripped and beaten and paraded and crucified. Pure, abject, humiliating failure, not success. And yet, the shape of Joseph's life should have given us the clue, if clue were needed, that that's not the way that God works. It's not that that is the whole of life. Because the success of God is a gift. Jesus knew that. The success of God sometimes comes, maybe always comes, walking through failure, not in spite of it. And Jesus knew most of all that his success in his life and resurrection was going to be for something, actually for someone, for you, to bless you, to rescue you, not from famine, but from all that alienates us from God, all that keeps us from being his friends. Jesus' success was for you and is God's greatest gift. That's why it's absolutely appropriate that we come to communion together. It's part of our way of pulling these threads together, but also it's part of our way of responding. And maybe as you come forward, whether it's to receive the bread and the wine or to receive a blessing, maybe what you can bring, if you like, metaphorically in your hands are the things that we've been thinking about. You might have one hand, if you like, imagining carrying the gifts God's given you, the successes you've had. They might feel very small things, or you may not be able to think of a thing this morning. Or they might feel very weighty, the privilege of being who you are, where you are, doing what you're doing. Maybe in the other hand, carry with you your failures, your lacks, the things that you wish were different. 
And the wonderful thing about communion is we come as we are, with what we have and what we wish we had, and we receive grace, the loving blessing of God. And we get to walk away from communion with a sense of, what has God given me that for?